Return to Northmore, Episode 8, running time, 37 minutes. This is Kim. And this is Tim. And welcome to Season 2 of the Return to Northmore podcast. We're back! Thanks for sticking with us through our very long hiatus. We are finally up and recording again. After picking up many fine diseases from Montana that completely shredded our voices. The hinterlands of Montana, while nice, were very deadly to us. So last time, our PCs had just discovered that they were descended from the ancients of Belalacqua. An ancient civilization that is now buried under the lost bog. They were also concerned about their former mentor, who had been seemingly kidnapped by Sahuagan. The ghosts of Belalacqua, who are friends with the Bogman, believe that he has been taken to the Temple of Art, a place that they were the caretakers of back when Belalacqua was still above the water. The ghosts have also told the PCs that it is very difficult to get to the Temple of Art. Not only must they be of noble Belalacquan blood, but they must possess one of the blood keys. And they say that the blood keys can be found in the Temple of Blood. The Bogman and the ghosts indicate that the PCs need to go to this Temple of Blood to get these keys as their next task. So some discussion occurs, and they decide that the Bogman can row them to the Temple of Blood, which is about an hour away. When things start off here, it's about midday, so there's plenty of time to do that. As the first encounter opens, the PCs have arrived in front of the Temple of Blood, so let's describe it. It is a fantasy twist on a Federalist building. So it's sort of an ancient Greek building, but with a big dome on top. Instead of white marble, it's an opalescent marble, reddish and shiny looking, sparkly. And there are many columns and a recessed entrance into it. Main door is a giant sheet of copper, which shows a little bit of verdigris on it, but the rest of the building seems to be completely untouched by the bogginess around it. Which seems a little odd, because there's been no caretakers whatsoever, and it seems to have just completely gotten rid of all of the muck that would collect from a swamp area. The bogman will pull up. Unfortunately, he cannot give them any details about what they might find inside, nor can the ghosts do so. And this is because this is a trial for the people looking for these blood keys. The blood keys were built as a safeguard in case something horrible happened to the city, which of course it did, and that's why it's sunk beneath the bog at this point. And the keys can only be retrieved by those who are worthy. Of course, if it was an emergency, it couldn't be that difficult to get the keys. And of course, if you know all the tricks, it's not too hard to get them. Although the ghosts cannot tell the PCs too much about the Temple of Blood, they can tell them about the Temple of Art, since that was indeed their home before the whole city sank. They can also tell them that currently the Temple of Art is guarded by a creature called the Kumat. It's a hideous giant crocodile man that came through from the Feywild, attracted by the magics of the temple. His lair is directly on top of the entrance to the temple, and they will probably have to defeat him in order to gain entrance. They also beg the PCs to burn their bodies so that they can be free and pass on to the next world. The people of Belalacqua believed that their bodies had to be burned for their souls to be free, so millions of Belalacquans are trapped here in the bog as ghosts and cannot be moved on to the next plane. The ghosts will also answer a lot of the questions that the PCs have regarding the Temple of Art. They can give them a rough map of it, as well as explain to them that the Temple of Art is dedicated to the god Carillion. He is not just an elven god now, he is indeed a god of art and beauty as well. The ghosts do not know how the city nor the surrounding area was destroyed. All they know is that they were murdered by men that were running around the temple 
in wild-colored cloaks, and they smelled horribly of the swamp. There are a number of works of art in the temple, as one would expect, that are from around the globe at that time, as well as from many different places across the plains. The art really can't be removed from the temple. It is magically bound there. They will say that their bodies are located in their bedrooms and request the PCs go ahead and burn them. A lot of these kinds of questions and discussion can be during that one-hour voyage from the Bogman's cabin to the Temple of Blood. Even though the Bogman's boat is small, the ghosts don't take up a lot of room. I imagine that they float. Yes. Which is probably kind of disconcerting. Yes. So once they get to the Temple of Blood, they will be confronted with this very large building that is spotless and clean in the middle of a dank, nasty bog. There's some steps leading up and then the copper door. As they get nearer, they will notice that the copper door is slightly ajar. This should lead them to be a little concerned that perhaps somebody has beat them to the punch. And indeed, someone has. As they enter the building, they will notice that there is a dead Sahuagin just inside the door, who appears to have been electrocuted. The Sahuagin appears to be lying on the floor of what is the only room of the temple. Around the rim of the room are a number of niches full of bas-reliefs of what appear to be ancient Balalaquins. None of them are labeled or have any indication of who they might be, but the room is otherwise empty except for... Nine tiles on the floor. Each of these tiles has a symbol of the gods. In order to proceed further into the temple, the PCs must walk the tiles in a particular order, and the clue as to what order to walk is written in a phrase inscribed into the floor. From the silver orb, cast yourself into the sea, first freeze the sea, but then remember who gives... Gather your strength and join the people of Great Belalakwa. Let's talk about what each of those pieces of the clue mean. It says, from the silver orb. Silver orb refers to the moon, and the goddess of the moon is... And then it says, cast yourself into the sea, and the goddess of the sea is... Melora. Then it says, first freeze the sea. Now, this is the first of the two in here that are probably going to be challenging. Freeze the sea is referring to the state of change from liquid to frozen, and the god of change is Avandra, and that's the center tile, so that's what that one refers to. Then it says, but then remember who gives life, and the leader of life is Pelor, the god of the sun. Gather your strength refers to... Cord, the god of strength. Then this next one is the tricky one, and then join the people of Great Belalakwa. Now, there's discussion, of course, as to whether that means the god of death, since Velak was dead. When this was built, they weren't dead. So, join the people of Great Belalakwa refers to Arathus, the god of civilization in the great city that Belalakwa was at that time. And there should be some clues regarding that from what the ghosts have been talking about. The players may or may not know all of this. That's fine. If they don't know, there's plenty of skill checks that they can make to help give them the information they need to know to do this. Don't let your players get frustrated. Let them roll some skill checks to move on. So from a religion check, DC 10, they can find out that Sahani is the goddess of the moon, Melora is the goddess of the sea, Kord the god of strength, and Plora the sun is the giver of life. With an arcana check of a DC 13, they can find out that the moon is sometimes called the silver orb, and that Freezing, as in freezing the sea, is a change of state. With the religion check DC 15, they can find out that Avandre is the god of change. And then with a DC 17 on a religion check, they will then figure out that Belalaka was a great city, part of a great civilization. And of course, Arathus is the god of civilization. Also, the moon is sometimes called the silver orb. 
if you don't have anybody who has Arcana as a skill check, and that freezing is a state of change. So this is one of those where if you've got someone who has religion or someone who has Arcana, they should be able to get all the information they need to figure this out. As they start walking the tiles, once they step on the first correct tile, which is the lower left tile, the goddess of the moon, they can make two mistakes before things start to go wrong. If they make a third mistake, the tiles themselves will electrocute them, plus 10 versus reflex for 2d8 plus 6 damage. This is clearly what happened to the Sahuagan that is laying on the floor in the chamber. They can search the chamber all they like. There is nothing else to find. Once they do correctly walk the path of the tiles, the entire set of tiles will sink down into the floor about 40 feet. It will take almost 10 minutes for this to happen. It's a very slow process. Once they arrive at the bottom, they'll be in our next scene. We're now entering scene three, and in this, the PCs will be dropping into a new chamber, which is going to give them another puzzle as well as a possibility of a combat. So there is a full-size image of this chamber, a picture that will make it much clearer, all the descriptions we're about to give you, so be sure to check out the show materials for that. When the PCs arrive, they are on a ledge overlooking a water-filled pit. The walls of the chamber are glowing with a phosphorescent moss that's dimly illuminating the entire chamber. The pit is about five squares across and about three squares deep from the ledge to the top of the water. The water is about five feet deep at the bottom of the pit. If your PCs look into the water, they will see a skeleton of a Sahuagin. On the far side of this pit on the wall, there are two niches. They are about 10 feet wide and 15 feet tall. The one on the left looks like it's about 10 feet deep, while the one on the right looks like it's covered by a stone door. The niche on the left is open, and it has a short stone column. It's partially covered by a copper pan that's hanging by a chain. On the far right side of the ledge that the PCs are standing on is an 18-inch diameter post that has a 3-inch deep indent about 6 inches from the top in it. The ceiling of the chamber is about 40 feet high, and it appears to be matching with the stone floor of the chamber above. The wall across the pit from them is inscribed with three symbols. An Arcana DC 17 or Religion DC 15 check can indicate to them that the symbols are the god Pelor, the god Ayun, and the god Arathus. And the whole idea of these symbols is to convey the message that fire will bring knowledge of civilization. On the column in that left niche that's rising from the floor, it appears to be marked on the top with the symbol of Pelor. So your PCs are going to look into this room and really wonder, what the heck are we supposed to be doing now? Once they get in there, it won't be entirely clear, but there is a hallway behind that right side niche in the wall. What they need to do is figure out a way of raising that door. They then need to figure out how to raise the copper pan that is on the left side niche. And the easiest way to do this is to set the column below the pan on fire. Uh, There is a buildup of swamp gas that is easily ignited. And the pan that's suspended above that column is slowly being filled by a drip of mercury from a magical vessel above the pan that's keeping it held down. If they ignite that column, the swamp gas will heat up the pan, evaporate the mercury, and the pan will rise. As the pan rises, the door that's covering the niche on the right will lower, allowing them access to the hallway beyond. When that door opens, a big chunk of Sahuagin will fall into the pit of water below. If they watch it, they'll see that it starts to dissolve. The fire will go out after a minute or so, and then the pan will refill with mercury, and the door will close as the mercury pan descends. The whole idea here is that this is a very quick trap. 
So the pan goes up from the heat of the swamp gas burning it. The door on the right goes down. And if they get across, no problem. But if they dilly-dally, then the mercury will fill the pan up again and the door will shut. And they can do this over and over again, but it will take a couple of minutes for the swamp gas to build up in that column enough to be reignited. Once the door to the right-hand niche is open, the PCs will notice that there is a notched column similar to the one on their side inside of that niche. When that door is open, they're going to need to figure out how to get across the pit. The easiest way to do that is to take a rope and lasso that other column in the niche at an AC of 8. Once somebody gets over there, they will notice that there is a lever on the back of that column. And when the lever is flipped, a bridge will come out of the ledge and go over to the niche. Timing is very important here. The bridge will only stay extended for about a minute. So the timing of lighting the fire, the pan goes up, the door goes down, someone gets over there, they flip the lever, then the bridge comes out. Getting all that and then getting everybody across, especially with a larger group, can be one of the most exciting parts of this and something that makes it more than just a simple puzzle. PCs will know that people can get trapped in here because they saw that Sahuagan foot fall out. If they happen to be caught as the door is coming up, the door essentially will attack them at plus 10 versus reflex for 1d6 plus 3 hit points. They'll then need to make a DC 12 acrobatics check or they're going to get knocked back away from the door and into the pit. If they find that they are falling into the pit, there is a creature in there and it is a transparent bog ooze which will attack anything that is fleshy. The evidence of that is the skeleton at the bottom. What is a transparent bog ooze? Well... It's basically an ochre jelly, and I've downed it a little bit in terms of power to make it more appropriate for the second-level characters that should be going through this part of the adventure. In addition, instead of being ochre-colored, it's transparent and hiding in the water at the bottom of this pit. It's still quite hungry and will be happy to munch on anything or anyone that falls into the pit. If you have a larger group, one that would be more able to take on a full-on combat with this thing, then I highly suggest you go ahead and have the ooze reach up out of the pit and try to snap at people that are going across on a rope stretched between or who are trying to stumble on the edge of the ledge or anything like that. For smaller groups, avoiding combat is probably a better option, as there will be a combat once they proceed just beyond this door and into the next chamber. Let's talk about the stats of this Bagus. It's got 90 hit points. It is a brute, so the whole idea of this creature is just to sit there and be a sack of hit points for the most part. AC 17, uh, which is pretty tough to hit for a second level character, we found out, especially if they roll as well as our fighter typically does. It's immune to gaze attacks. It has resist 5 to acid. It is speed 4, so that doesn't move particularly quick, but it has an ability called flowing form. And what flowing form allows it to do is shift four squares. So that means it can move four squares without provoking opportunity attacks, and it can do that right through people and that sort of thing, which can be pretty exciting if you're down in the water with it. And then, of course, the classic part of these oozes is the split. So as soon as the ooze is bloodied, it actually splits into two oozes, each having one half of the current hit points. At that point, it's two creatures. If there are effects on one of them, such as being marked or something like that, they only apply to the original creature and not the new split-off creature. The main attack of this creature is a slam, which is plus 8 versus AC, 2d6 plus 1 damage, and then the ongoing 5 acid damage, save ends. If the PCs do everything correctly, they should not encounter this creature. However, if they you know, mess up and fall into the pit, or if they decide to just jump down in there, that sort of thing, they're going to have a little bit of fun. 
Once the PCs get over to the other side of the ledge, there is a short hallway that will immediately take a right that goes for about 15 feet and then turns again and goes 30 feet. At that point, there is a door which empties into a large chamber. This is the chamber where the blood keys are stored. But that's not the only thing in there. There are seven young Sahuagin guards that have been left behind to make sure that nobody gets a key just in case. So the Sahuagin have been here already, obviously, by all the bodies we've seen, and they have managed to get one of these blood keys. This should be of high interest to the PCs because, as they will soon discover, you have to have noble Bellalachman blood to retrieve one of the keys. In the hallway, the Sahuagin are guarding to make sure no one gets through. If the PCs have made a lot of noise, if they fought the ooze, if they've opened and shut the door multiple times, then they're basically going to be waiting right around the corner to ambush the PCs with great surprise and tridents flying into their heads and that sort of thing. If the PCs have been pretty quick and haven't dinked around a lot trying to get the passage open, then they're going to be waiting back in that main chamber or just inside the door. And you'll need to tune your placement of where you want these guards to be based on your group. You don't want to clump them up if you've got a wizard. You might want to have them further back if it's a smaller group so that they have a little more time to see what's going on and so forth. They are the same as we had in our last episode. They are actually minions, so they go down pretty easily, but they hit pretty hard. The AC-17 is fairly difficult to hit for these second-level characters, but they can do so. Their attacks are a trident in melee, which is plus 6 versus AC for 5 points of damage, and then a trident throne, which is plus 6 versus AC for 5 points of damage. And they have to go grab their tridents before they can throw it again. The fun part of the Sohagen is the Blood Frenzy. They get plus one bonus to attack and two to damage against enemies that are bloodied. These Sohagen are going to fight to the death to prevent the PCs from getting into the chamber. And again, make sure you arrange them so that it makes sense for the group. Once the PCs have vanquished all of the Sahuagan guards, they will be able to enter the chamber of the Blood Keys. This chamber is about 50 feet by 50 feet and about 30 feet high. So it's quite large. There are a number of stone blocks suspended from the ceiling if they look up there. They probably will because they will notice a very squashed looking dead Sahuagan on the floor. There is at the end of the room a 10 foot wide raised area. And in the center there is a altar like fireplace. Although it doesn't look like this fireplace has ever been lit. There is a mantle of the fireplace and it has a thick iron bar on it. Hanging from that bar are nine crystal keys and they look roughly like eye bolts. They have no way that you can tell that they can come off of this iron bar. There's no apparent way that they release. If you look up the fireplace, you will see that there is daylight at the very top of it. Let's talk a little bit more about these keys. There are nine keys suspended from this iron bar. Each of them is hollow and crystalline. The tips of the keys are very sharp and hollow. So if you look up the bottom of a key, you can see a tiny opening. They're sort of eye bolt shaped or onk shaped. Now what the PCs are supposed to do is they are supposed to plunge the tip of this key into their arm. It will draw blood up into the key. Once that happens, the key will come off the bar quite easily. It will phase through the bar and they'll be able to take it and do whatever they would like. However, if they tug hard on these keys or jerk on the bar hard, 
all of the iron blocks from the ceiling will slam down into the middle of the room, 2d6 plus 10 damage to whoever's under there, and then they will retract back up into the ceiling, preparing for the next time someone jerks on the bar. So hopefully this will not happen, given that they have the Sahuagin as a warning. But if it does, that's what happens. Once the PCs have filled a blood key up with blood, and they look inside the fireplace, they will see that there is a small slot that one of these keys can fit into. If the key is placed into the slot and turned, the floor of the fireplace will raise up, lifting anyone up much like the floor lowered in the other chamber. The key can be removed after they arrive at the top. They'll be able to take that on to the Temple of Art. At the rear of the temple, they'll see a large number of Sahuagan tracks, and there's also marks of where a boat had been. Once they get around the front of the temple, the Bogman, Ramadal, and Alanada will be there waiting for them and congratulate them on getting a key and so forth and indicate that the Temple of Art is about six hours away. When you use one of these keys on yourself, it drains a lot of blood. That PC will count as dazed until they take an extended rest, which is essentially sleep overnight. It's also getting close to dark, so the Bogman will recommend that they return to his hut for the night and then head out to the Temple of Art in the morning. Among all of the dead Sahuagin that they found, the PCs will find level 2 treasure parcel 5, which is 290 gold worth of stuff, and you can break that out as cash, 200 GP gems plus 90 gold, 2 potions of healing plus 190 gold, however you think it would work best for your group. For XP, they'll get a story award of 200 XP for the group, 259 XP for the Sahuagin, and 300 for the Ooze. So if a group of four defeated everything, they'll get 190 experience points each. If you're doing double XP like we recommend, that'll be 380 each. And we'll be back with tips and tricks right after the break. The Land of Cairn. It is a world where gods can choose to live mortal lives to directly affect events in the world, and often do. The River of Magic is rising. Monsters are moving into Cairn through tears in the fabric. The dead are escaping Kalan's abyss, and the children of Aj have returned, just as the prophets foretold. But even as these overarching events play themselves out, a piece of the puzzle falls into place in the seemingly unremarkable town of Avedon Hill. Aramis Cragen, retired Aaronic advisor, arrives at Avedon Hill and is asked to investigate the murder of Greta Platt, the Avedon Manor housemistress. But in doing so, Aramis uncovers secrets that threaten Karen's very foundation. What begins as a search for justice becomes a fight for survival, all in a place where nothing is what it seems. Welcome to the land of Karen. Welcome to Murder at Avedon Hill, a podcast novel by P.G. Holyfield, featuring some of the great voices of podcasting and podcast fiction. A perfect place for Greta Platt to escape the troubles of the day. So beautiful, so inspiring. Also a fine place for someone to catch her defenseless and end her life. Not now, Joris. You chose the wrong time for one of your rants about undead threats rising there in There is Karen. evil here in Avedon Hill. You can never be sure what will greet you at your door. Of course it has to be alive. You should have known that, monk. You promised us the hunter, and you have failed us. You promised us a power beyond our understanding. And again, you have failed us. You have not seen what I have seen. Events are transpiring that neither you nor I can affect. Aaron's powers have peaked from under those covers. I hope you both survive long enough to find a use. Brother of Aaron, look how you've aged. You've spent so much of your life in darkness. Murder at Avedon Hill by P.G. Holyfield. Sit back and let the mystery unfold. 
Learn more at pgholyfield.com and patiobooks.com. Welcome back, and many thanks to P.G. Holyfield. We are anxiously awaiting episode 40. Now we'll go over what happened with our group as we went through this. This was very confusing for most of the PCs. Anytime you have a puzzle situation, there's always going to be a lot of head scratching, which is part of the fun of it. Head scratching is not the problem. Where things go south is if there's a lot of head scratching and it doesn't feel like anybody's getting anywhere. And in this, I don't think we really had a feeling like people weren't getting anywhere, but there was a lot of some people getting there faster than others. In one of the scenes, Wick's character got there right away, and so he's like, oh, I'm going to do this, and just ignored what everyone else was saying and went ahead and did it. And in later ones, Kim and her character Tempest had pretty much figured out what needed to be done and was trying to convince everyone, uh, but no one seemed to buy off what she was saying, which, of course, it turned out to be right in the end. So in this case, there was a lot of chit-chat about what's the right thing to do and whatnot. The key to making sure that your players don't get frustrated with puzzles like this is making sure that you bring in their character's knowledge to the puzzle through the use of skill checks. Absolutely. I think that part of the problem that we had in particular was there were inner party conflicts being played out at the same time as some puzzles that could have went really fast but weren't going as fast as we'd like. And it also was during an all-day gaming session where there were some interesting things going on in the dynamic. We'll go into the details of exactly what happened during the session in our next episode, which will be the actual play of this episode, and you can kind of see that stuff play out. So in scene one, the next steps, the Bogman is ready and willing to take you to the Temple of Blood, and the ghosts have explained to you that you need to do that prior to going to the Temple of Art. Now, this is adding a little tension to the scene because, of course, everybody wants to go ahead and save the mentor immediately. So being told that they have to go somewhere else first can be a little bit frustrating. In addition, if you have someone who doesn't necessarily like taking orders from ghosts, then that can be a little bit of an interesting role-playing thing. And instead of just trying to whip on and move by it, you know, relish that role-playing and make it happen. But in the end, these spirits need to be laid to rest. And the way to lay them to rest is to find their bodies inside this temple and burn them so that they can go on to the next world. So we can move on to scene two, the entrance of the Temple of Blood. And again, this is the first puzzle that your group will run across. This is the one where they walk on the tiles uh, that all are related to one or other of the gods. If you are running this campaign in a place that you're not using the standard player's handbook gods, then feel free to substitute this and update the clue to match the gods you're using. Now, this is a pretty standard D&D type puzzle. We've all seen them in novels and in movies, so it should not surprise your players all that much. The new information is, who are these gods? What do they stand for? Since this is all new to 4th edition for most people, that alone is the major challenge of this puzzle. The concept that there's tiles that you walk on in a certain order is the part that's solid and understood. So that part shouldn't be a big surprise, and as a result, it shouldn't be too difficult of a puzzle. You will notice in our actual play episode that nobody gets fried by the electricity, and that's because we didn't make two mistakes. We only had one mistake, and so we didn't have a real big problem. We just had to backtrack a little bit. And I think that'll be fairly typical for groups, but the idea is that there is a punishment. And you will see throughout all the puzzles here, there's going to be a dead Sahuagin every time there's a place where failure could mean trouble. These are second-level characters. The idea is these people are new to 4th edition, may even be new to D&D, and a result these Sahuagin are here as sort of a signpost to indicate that there could be a problem. If you picture Raiders of the Lost Ark and there's all the dead bodies up against the side that have gotten shot with the darts, that really lends the air of danger. It's like, well, are you going to make it through? Because somebody else didn't. 
You should allow your players to investigate this chamber as much as they want. They're not really going to get a lot of information, but they can get a sense of the ancient people of Belalakwa from the bas-reliefs. And you should feel free to make up whatever scenes, if they do investigate them, that you'd like. People living and working, mixing things. This is a very high civilization. Think the kinds of things you'd see in ancient Roman architecture, or even if we took our modern world and transposed it into the scenes of ancient life. There is a dead Sahuagan here, and the players may want to go ahead and search it. As we have it, it does not have any information on it whatsoever. Of course, players being players are going to search. The Sahuagan moved on. They eventually did manage to get a blood key at the end. They got the blood key by taking the mentor, who was also of noble Belalakan blood, and using him to get the key. However, a lot of other Sahuagan died along the way. They obviously took the stuff off the body as they continued. They just didn't really care to move the body along. They just don't care that way. But the treasure is on the living Sahuagan at the end. Using your skill checks in both religion and arcana, you should be able to get your flip players through this in a fairly reasonable amount of time. It's really up to your group. If you've got a lot of players who really enjoy puzzles, then you'll probably want to keep the clues to a minimum. If you have a lot of players who don't, then you'll probably want to give them the opportunity to use those checks to get the clues before they even start in on the puzzle. The next scene, the balance of knowledge, is another puzzle with the copper pan and the ledge and all of the scary oozes at the bottom. A steady diet of tricks and traps can be kind of old here. So if the players spend a whole lot of time on the previous puzzle, then this one you might again give them more clues earlier on. Clues that include maybe the pan is slowly moving up and down and as the pan is moving up and down they can see the door on the side slowly moving up and down. One of our players repelled off of the front of the ledge down toward the water and could see where the bridge came out and push that in and out a little bit. If somebody has acute eyesight, they could see the mercury drops coming down that are filling the pan as well. The default, easiest option is to light the fire in the gas-filled cylinder under the pan, but that doesn't mean that's the only way to solve this, and you should definitely not treat it as that being the case. There are a number of ways for the players to get their characters across that chasm into the niche. They can fire an arrow with flame if they want to fire off the swamp gas that way. We ended up doing it with Faye Step and an Aladrin, and she was able to light that fire right there, which was a little panicky for everyone because they thought that there was going to be a trap behind that. You could have a wizard that could have a flame burst. There's all sorts of different things you could do. And if you have someone who doesn't even want to bother lighting the thing, if they go over there and they just want to lift the pan themselves or pour the mercury out, that will work. If someone repels over to the other side of the wall and just inserts a piton in between the door and shoves it down really hard with a really solid strength check, fine. Whatever it takes to have them feel like their plan was successful. And this is really important, especially if the puzzle above took a large amount of time. For us, it didn't. And this one, we were able to take a lot more time doing it. You want to balance that out. And if you have an eight-hour play session, this could be a really short amount of stuff. And as a result, you may not want to hurry them along here and let them work it out. But don't let them get frustrated. Make sure that they're enjoying the process. The one thing that confused our group quite a bit was that original post column that is on our side. And we thought that it may be twisted around and open something. So let your players try some other things out as well. Don't tell them they're stupid. Let them try whatever they want to try. 
the key to being a good DM is to make it clear what the characters are experiencing. The character comes up and grabs that post and oh, it feels solid as a rock. No matter how you move it, you can't do it. Don't have them just roll a strength check and say, okay, you failed, it doesn't move. Otherwise, they're going to try again. And there are carvings on that wall. Point that out to them because somebody might figure it out. I know in our group we didn't. It was a little esoteric for us. But other groups might go, oh, yeah, so fire is knowledge and the ancients must have respected it. So it has something to do with that. We didn't get there from here. There's a lot of different ways to solve it. There's a lot of different kinds of clues. And you should let the players explore the space to get a feel for it and go ahead and enjoy that knowledge seeking process. I know that the ooze was somewhat confusing to us because we didn't get to encounter it. We automatically assumed that the water in the bottom was acid, and that's what ate the Sahuagan right up as it was. So there was much lowering of buckets into the water and putting of shoes into the water to see if they smoked and and so forth, and I just let all that happen uh, because I was hoping that once nothing happened with all that that they'd, you know, climb down in there with the ooze, but they never did. You can't get us that easily, you know. So moving on to scene four, which is Shark Alley. This was a little frustrating for some of us, most of us that were in the back of the party rather than the front of the party. Originally, I had made the passage from the testing chamber to the key chamber single file, so five feet wide. Yes, you can squeeze two people in there, and yes, they can get through, but it unfortunately encouraged only the people in front to be able to do something. So in the new map, I've revised it. It's now a 10-foot wide passage, so people can get double file. You should be able to have a lot more action moving up and down, and you really need to move those Sahuagan up and down the passage, have them spill out into the chamber. Maybe they chase the PCs. Since there's seven of them, it could be a pretty overwhelming battle at some point, and maybe the PCs try to escape and try to get back out the door, which is now closed behind them. Maybe they're climbing up on that, trying to shove it down, pitoning it open. Who knows? But the idea is to try to make it dynamic and not make it so that only the people in front can do something. And this is particularly important if you have a warlord, because they're all about movement and positioning of the rest of the players. So keep that in mind and keep that battle really fluid and moving around make this hallway set up an exciting part of the battle, a place where an ambush can take place and not a frustrating piece of terrain. Keep in mind that this hallway as well as chamber are dark, so those with low light vision will have some advantage but not much. We ended up needing to light torches, I believe. The Sahuagan have low light vision. They can't see completely in the dark. There are torches in the chamber of keys itself, which spills through, so the Sahuagan where they're at, they can sort of see, but further in the hallway, it's very dark. Going on to scene five, the Chamber of the Keys, this scene may hold your people up quite a bit. Kim's character was able to quickly figure out that the keys were essentially hypodermic needles. I mean, the whole idea is it's the Temple of Blood and the Blood Keys and all that sort of pounded the message home, but not all the rest of our players uh, picked up on that. Well, that might have something to do with the fact that I work in that industry, and so I see hypodermic needles all the time. Yes, that may indeed be part of it. This may be something where you have to get creative with your skill checks. We didn't list particular skill checks to figure out the puzzle because we really weren't sure what your group had or how that would apply, and this is where you need to get creative. Maybe a healing check if they've seen needles like this before. Maybe a crafting type check if they use needles to sew with or something like that. Whatever you think might apply if they're getting confused, even a straight intelligence or wisdom check, to get the idea that it's a hollow thing that's sharp, it's a blood key, temple of blood, whatever it takes to get the message home. I think that for our group it would have been better had it been described in a little bit smaller of scale, as well as making it clear that this was 
a transparent, translucent kind of material, that it was indeed crystalline, that you could see things going in and out of it if necessary. When I ran this scene, I think the most frustrating part to me was that I would describe the situation and two people were having a side conversation, and then I'd describe it again and someone else was taking detailed notes on the previous thing I'd said, and then I would describe it again and someone else was telling everyone else about what their idea was. So no one ever really got the full description because everything she just said I did at one point or another say. It's just that because of all the stuff that was going on, all the information didn't get conveyed, so I kind of said it over and over again, and it wasn't until everybody got all the information that it was an aha moment. The other part of this puzzle is the blocks that are hanging from the ceiling. You should let your players know that they're there. Draw their attention to that smashed up sahuaga in the room, because if they get a little too brutal with these keys and break them all, then you're kind of done. These keys are critical to them being able to get into the next place. So, you know, if they take a hammer and start trying to chop them off the rod, it's going to be ugly. And they need at least one. And we find later on that it's nice to have a couple. If at some point you decide that having the Sohuagan there to indicate the danger of the trap is a little bit too much of a giveaway for your players, perhaps you have a really jaded dungeon-crawling hardcore group, feel free to take that out and have it just be an empty, smooth, clean chamber so when they come in they have no idea what waits ahead of them. They will probably be a little confused on how to get out. I know that we were because we did not look up the chimney, so we didn't see the daylight and how that would get us up there. Eventually one of us did look, And we didn't quite figure it out all the way and started climbing up, as I recall. If you want to have them be able to get out the way they came in, that's fine. They can go back to the elevator with the symbols of the gods on it. And, you know, if they dance around long enough, the thing will start going back up. Obviously, it goes up on its own after about 15 minutes. So if you think it's been that long, they'll get back and the elevator's gone. And they'll have to try to climb back up or something like that. So again, this is where making sure their characters understand what they see is critical. So at the end of this, they will eventually get out, and time is of the essence. There are footprints, tracks leading away, they know where they need to go, and they really want to get on it. However, since they're probably weak from having their blood drained, if you picture yourself going to give blood, that's what's happened with these keys. They hold almost a pound of blood, so it's definitely something where they're feeling mighty weak. So my suggestion is that you impress upon them that they're going to have to spend the night. It's dark, no one likes to travel in the bog at night. But first thing in the morning, they should be heading out. At that, then they get congratulations and they get to have time to rest up, get all their healing surges back, all their daily powers, encounter powers, and so they should be ready to go in the morning. I just want to give a quick shout out to my brother Greg, who's serving in Iraq at this time. Hopefully you're able to hear this and enjoy it and pretend that you're here with us. Love you, man. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Return to Northmore a podcast released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license by Tim White and Kim Stone. Our theme music is Charge of the Valiant from Dronalyn's Tower, Legends of Kithilin Volume 1, Tales of the Long Forgotten, used by permission of its composer, David Allen Young. Find out more about their fantastic gaming music at dronalyn.com. Visit us and many other fine podcasts at spookyouthouse.com. Spooky Outhouse.